Welcome to Armed Love, episode 5 of the Antifada side project where we talk about the revolutionary culture of the 60s and its remembrance and recurrence today. My guest today is Jenny Brown, an organizer with National Women's Liberation and the author of Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now and a former collaborator with the Red Stockings Collective. Thanks for joining us, Jenny Brown. How are you feeling tonight? Oh, pretty good. Good to be here. Yeah, and, and we're recording, we're going to probably release this next week, but we're recording this right before this uh, ominous election, which is largely on the topic that we'll be talking about, about relating to women's liberation and the, the abortion struggle. With that in mind, what, what are your thoughts about the election? Does it even matter to you? Oh, yeah. I mean, there's um, there's really significant stuff going to be happening in terms of referenda. Um, so in Michigan, they have a referendum on basically protecting abortion rights in the in the state. And in Massachusetts, there is a tax the millionaires referendum that's going to be really important. And then just in general, you know, there's there are a lot of um, cases where where it's basically an outright fascist who's going who's running um and you know obviously we're we do better with uh with sort of the the even the neoliberal democrats than we do with with these people who are just trying to get rid of any uh semblance of democracy so um you know in terms of like the struggle terrain it's going to be really important right in your book you talk a lot about how the the neoliberal democrats or whatever kind of democrats have really gotten us into the mess that we're in today when it comes to abortion rights. But we're going to try to work our way back there and, and, and uh, start in the 60s, start with the emergence of radical feminism. And um, our, our listeners tend to range a little bit younger, maybe 30s, 20s. And for a lot of people, the term radical feminism is practically a pejorative, or at least people have negative connotations with it. So uh, what does that term radical feminism mean to you? Yeah, I mean, uh, radical feminism was was basically um, this. It was very much used uh, as the the same as the women's liberation movement um, in the early days, and then later it became sort of a, a a different term and has has split off, and now it's even sort of associated with turfs, right? So, um, so that, but. But women's liberation was the term that a lot of people used, and I think is still like really defines the period that um, that the feminist movement took off again. Um, the radical section of the feminist movement took off again in the late '60s, um, and our group, National Women's Liberation, you know, harks back to that, and also has some antecedents in the um, in Gainesville Women's Liberation, which was the first. Women's Liberation Group in the South, founded in 1968, and in um, some of the groups in New York, including Red Stockings, uh, which was founded in 1969, both of them would identify themselves as radical feminist groups from that period, um, and radical in the sense of going to the root of the problem as opposed to maybe the liberal groups, which were... um, more concerned with okay, well, we'll change a law here or there, um, 
but not really get to what is what is driving male supremacy and what is causing it. So that was what they meant. And the founders start really um, in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and other grassroots Southern civil rights groups. Um, and they basically, a, a few came from the anti-war movement and the Students for a Democratic Society, but primarily the leaders came from, uh, both white and black came from SNCC or CORE or other Southern formations. And it was the inspiration of the, how that movement worked and its goals and, and it's really serious organizing that made them start to think that they could organize uh, women around women's oppression, which was not a thing. It was like women weren't oppressed. They had the vote. What was what was the big deal? So so um, in fact, one of the first black feminist groups was the SNCC Black Women's Liberation Committee, which later became the Third World Women's Alliance. And SNCC itself had. Uh, feminist actions. There was a there was a sit-in against sexism at one point in one of the offices. Um, they developed policies. One of the staff, um, Zahara Simmons, who was running a, a, a project director who was running a Mississippi project, um, created what was probably the first movement uh, sexual harassment policy. Um, and even the term women's liberation came from that milieu. That was the first place that a lot of people heard that term. So, um, so they took a lot of their politics from from the black movement. And when SNCC uh, made the turn to black power and basically told white people to go organize other white people, um, you know, some people went into labor or uh, welfare rights. Um, but some of the women really started to work out what would a deeply serious and radical movement like the one that they'd participated in for Southern black people, what would that look like if it was focused on the oppression of women? Um, and so they founded groups seeking to do that. New York radical women came out of that. Red stockings uh, came out of New York radical women and Gainesville women's liberation came out of that. Um, they started to meet and write papers. And by 68, um, they had developed basically the first program of the movement, which was called consciousness raising. And the point was to develop feminist consciousness in the way that they saw black people do in meetings in the South, where people would stand up and tell it like it is about the racism and poverty that they were experiencing in their lives. So these feminists thought that they first had to establish um, that women were oppressed and then analyze that oppression in these consciousness raising groups, figure out how it worked, who was benefiting from it. Um, and in consciousness raising, they really discovered that the problems that they thought were their individual failings or problems in their personal relationships were really something that was shared by a lot of women. And um, that they, if they were common problems, there was a political and social root and then that opened up the idea in that context of being with a bunch of other women who are angry about it. Um, that opened up the idea that you could do something about it. And abortion was um, was exactly that kind of thing. People thought about it as like, oh, I might get pregnant. It would be like a random event in my life, like a mugging, you know, and you th you were scared that it was going to happen. But it what you didn't conceptualize it as a political thing. You just thought, oh, it was a personal failing, a stupid mistake you made, you blamed yourself. And 
in consciousness raising, when they realized that this was a common problem that they were all facing, they they started to see it as, politically as something that could be tackled politically. Um, so so that's where the movement started out. And the initial emergence of it came out of this. Was it a 1968 SDS convention that was? Um, largely concerned with the question of, of black liberation and, and colonial struggles. And a group of women, including Shulamith Firestone, releases manifesto saying women are colonized people, women are this race class or race caste, and we need to start organizing just like we're seeing black and colonized people organize around the world. That was one of the um, one of the starts, and in fact, the um, the 1968 paper toward a female liberation movement um, makes fun of that the position that the that the SDS women took, basically saying, you know, you you can't you can't ask you know this this uh, left male led group to uh, fight for your liberation. You need to start your own organizations. Mm-hmm. And um, so so that was when and and there were there were also at the same time uh, independent women's liberation uh, meetings. And that was where consciousness raising started to be. Uh, it was started in New York and Gainesville, and then it started to be spread around the country um, through a couple of meetings in 1968. So so yeah, there there were all sorts of strands going on, and I think it's important to to note that it's not sexism in the movement that starts the women's liberation movement, because that's a way it's portrayed a lot of times, right? That oh, men in the movement, and particularly in the black movement, this is the way it's portrayed. We're sexist, and therefore that's why women broke off and started. There was sexism everywhere. There was male supremacy everywhere in the society. What was different in the left was that there was a determination to have it, to create a movement for justice and equality, and so the contrast between that and the the um, practice of of sexism that was going on in those movements, but also the good example of the civil rights movements organizing and how to organize and the idea of how you would do that, um, that was what really inspired. These things, so I think the negative gets gets um, uh, emphasized too much, you know. And this is part of the sort of the rewriting of radical feminism as oh, it was not part of the left, right? It was in fact against the left, and you know um, that the left was this terrible thing. So, so I think I think that comes from a later later interpretation of it. At, you know, all of the people who started the movement consider themselves uh, of the left, on the left, and and, you know, were socialists and communists and thought that, you know, thought that revolution was coming, but they wanted women to be equal within that revolution. So um, and, and also I'll add to this that uh, the, the question of of whether transgender women were women or whether uh, transvestites were, were allies and, and like more of these essentialist things was not settled amongst that group of people. People had different ideas and a lot of them came to the conclusions that that you or I might come to today about you know we, we uh, women actually do uh, uh, have a lot of commonalities with this emerging, not yet quite emerged queer liberation movement. Yeah, I mean there were big fights within the movement, and initially that issue didn't come up, but by the early seventies that issue did come up, and um, you know there were 
moves to exclude a trans woman from from a conference, and the conference basically voted no, let let her stay. Um, and then they tried to kick her out anyway. And it was just like that that kind of debate, right, was was happening. But also this the essentialism argument, I think, comes in later and is more of a conservative trend that that um, that comes with this sort of um, uh, stepping back away from uh, political struggle and really talking about, you know, women as a, having a culture and let's just retreat into our, uh, you know, our cultural institutions that we create that are women only and all this stuff. That was not the initial uh, approach of the of the women's liberation movement that, that was founded in 68. That was not um, that was not their position. Their their position was it was a political struggle for power um, and it needed to be waged with men and against capital. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of what I know about it comes from uh, reading your book recently and some of your writing, and then also Alice Eccles' uh, Radical Feminism, Daring to be Bad, uh, which is, I think has struck me as a, a really good history of, of those early years uh, into the mid-70s. And it seemed like the, re the initial reaction uh, to women's liberation in the left sort of mirrored in like a short period of time the way it would play out to the current day, which was initially not taken seriously and shot down. And these women were, um, you know, mocked and insulted. Uh, but, you know, just them making the critique seemed to very quickly change the culture and them sticking with it and like taking action and pushing their rhetoric and their ideas and, and making these political issues important in the left very quickly made women's liberation have to be part of the left even as it rejected it, uh, you know, and specifically, I'm thinking of this initial action that you you start without apology, talking about this protest at the New York City Health Department debate on abortion. Can you describe that action and, and its effect? Yeah, I mean, so daring to be bad is a good history. And also, I should mention Carol Giardina's book, Freedom for Women, is an excellent history and includes a lot of the um, black organizing, if people are interested in that, the black feminist organizing. Um, so there had been a liberal movement to reform the abortion laws, and it had bumped along for decades, basically trying to create exceptions to the total ban on abortion that we'd had for 100 years. Um, and the exceptions would be like rape, incest, life or health of the mother, as they call it, or if you'd had already five kids, for example, then you would be allowed to have an abortion. And these reformers were, you know, mostly well-meaning lawyers and doctors and professionals, and they had actually gotten some of these exceptions passed in some states um, in the early 60s, but those exceptions didn't help most people, of course. So um, it was uh, basically to consider a set of these exceptions that the New York state legislature held a hearing in New York city in February of 1969. Um, and they were going to hear from this panel of experts, which happened to be 14 men and only one woman. And she was a nun. Right. So um, meanwhile, New York radical women have been doing all this consciousness raising about abortion. And they were basically outraged that once again, this group of powerful men were going to debate about how much control women were going to be allowed to have over their lives. So a faction of that group that later became Red Stockings um, 
they dressed up like, you know, nice ladies attending a, a hearing and infiltrated the audience. And um, at an opportune point, one of them, it was Kathy Sarachild, they had drawn lots for who would kick it off. She stood up and said, now let's hear from the real experts, women, right? Mm -hmm. And then woman after woman stood up and told their experiences of illegal abortions or having the kid that they didn't want to on and on for like 30 minutes. Um, and it really telling off the panel and the chair tried to, of course, stop them and interrupt it. They just kept going. They had, you know, had a bunch of people talking about this. Um, so eventually the cops came and the session was moved to a closed room. But um, the strategy was very clear. Attack the liberal reform idea and demand full repeal of all the abortion laws. Um, and then they also established this tactic of speaking out about illegal abortion. And right after that, Red Stockings organized their own hearing, um, which was a speak out basically of women testifying about their illegal abortions for the first time that anybody had done it in public. And of course, they were still illegal. So not only was it against the law, it was also your employer could hear about it. You could lose your job. Maybe your family would reject you. All these things that people had to face. Right. Um, and but it really burst open the demand for full repeal of the laws, not just tweaks to allow a select few through who could prove that they've been raped or whatever the situation was. So um, and this, of course, was like much more popular because it would help so many more people. Right. Um, who cared about reforms that were only going to help a few people? Um, most people had an unwanted pregnancy. They, it wasn't a result of any of these qualifying, you know, situations. They just wanted an abortion. Um, what would help them was the women's liberation slogan, which was free abortion on demand. So very soon, um, in 1970, the movement in New York was strong enough to force through what was basically the most liberal law in the nation. Um, and it said that basically abortion was legal if a doctor did it in the first two trimesters, that was the law. Um, and New York became the place to get a safe legal abortion if you could afford to travel and pay for it uh, from 1970 on. Um, that was true. So that law, uh, you say in the book, ended up becoming sort of the model of what the Supreme Court, headed by the notorious RBG, uh, passes in uh with the Roe versus Wade decision, and, and was that seventy four? Um, it was seventy three, and the court was all men at that point. No, she no. argued the decision. No, she didn't argue oh, the decision. Man. <laughs> so why does she get the credit? Just because uh, she argued a couple of uh, sex discrimination cases in the seventies that were very important. So that that may be all where right, the all right. confusion is. Yeah. Regardless, her and the Supreme Court at the time are seen as being, you know, enlightened in some way and, uh, you know, in tune with uh, the progressive reality of the culture in a way. They get, uh, you know, this boost of legitimacy. But in your book, you argue that really they were sort of forced to do it as a legitimizing maneuver by this mass movement. So after this, you know, initial action, uh, what does the mass movement look like and how does it eventually move the court into legalizing abortion with Roe versus Wade. Right. This is always it with the history, right? They say, oh, well, it's nothing you did, you little peons that are protesting and doing all this stuff. You know, you're you, you are not having an effect on history. What's, what has an effect on history is these great enlightened men that do this, right? So 
the history that comes down to us is that, you know, we were in, guided by their wisdom and their justice and whatever. But that ignores all of the stuff that was happening in the streets at that point. And I should point out that it wasn't just the women's liberation movement, though that was a huge part of it. There were protests about a ton of things at that point and urban uprisings and all the, the black Puerto Rican uh, American Indian movements, Asians in, in California. I mean, like uh, Latino organizing. And we, it was just like a, a huge uprising of stuff happening. And it really put the um, ruling class on the back foot and they started to try to peel off groups and try to um, appease, right? So um, so we got like the uh, Occupational Health and Safety Act in, in part because um, the Nixon administration wanted to because the Nixon administration wanted to get, um, uh, you know, some of the labor movement on on side. So it's in the context of all of this going on that the women's liberation movement is, in addition to the speakouts, which spread all over the country, there was a spate of lawsuits on behalf of women. And in some cases, the like in the New York case, the law was changed partly to forestall the prospect that the that the courts would invalidate the law completely and there would be no law, which was actually what the women's liberation movement wanted. There were massive marches and protests all over the country. There was a um, a group of 5,000 clergy who were illegally referring for abortions um, from 1967 on, just to give you an idea, they were risking arrest for that. There were, every college had a feminist referral service referring for illegal abortions. Um, and then there was a general feminist upsurge that made a broad range of demands. Um, you know, in the like in 1970, the women's strike for equality, which was a march down Fifth Avenue, demanded um, they demanded free abortion on demand and no forced sterilization. But they also demanded free community controlled 24 hour child care centers and equal jobs and education for women. So like there was, there was just a lot going on. And, um, and I think you can see maybe from that, that, that like this portrayal of the women's liberation movement as only being concerned with middle-class or white concerns. This was really wrong for this phase of the movement. This early phase of the movement was was very much um, first of all there were a lot of black feminist groups there were black feminists involved in the in the uh, in the majority white movement and um, and you know the demands were for working people right childcare you don't need childcare if you're not going to work um, abortion was you know everybody needed that uh, the right to that and and equal pay huge important thing for everyone so. So like this idea that it would only be of concern to like professional or middle class people, those demands were that was not true, those demands. Um, So um, and then the other thing that was going on, I think, for the Supreme Court and for the ruling class at the time is this was part of the Cold War competition over which system better represented freedom. So, you know. Women were having to go underground in the U.S. and dying in back alley abortions, and there were wards in every city hospital of people injured and and having horrible infections from illegal abortions. Um, you know, 
in our supposed citadel of democracy, whereas in the Soviet Union, you could just go into a hospital and get an abortion free, right? So they were concerned about what that looked like. Um, this is some leverage that we do not have right now. Um, so, so the Supreme Court basically took the New York law as a model, and they, they dithered about it for about a year, what they were going to do. And then they finally did, um, did decide in, in 1973, in January 1973, they decided um, that they would basically make abortion legal for the first two trimesters um, and that, you know, states could not ban abortion for the first two trimesters if it was done by a doctor. So the, the, that was the that was the decision. And, and it was kind of a surprise to to everyone that, like, we won so fast. Right. But I mean, we can talk about that. Yeah. And, and when this decision comes out, uh, you describe in the book how people fighting to legalize abortion totally repeal all the laws against abortion and make it free on demand and, you know, all these uh, these larger demands of women, women's liberation uh, immediately recognized the problem with this decision and its limits, essentially recognizing that the way it was worded meant it could be rolled back little by little. And in the book, you describe how they totally saw what was coming up until the present day where it's become overturned and, uh, and weakened uh, so dramatically previously. So what did they notice about this decision and what would be today maybe a better way to legalize abortion? Yeah, I mean, so the the first thing was the doctor requirement, which had been in the New York law, um, you know, and the framing of this as something that women would do in consultation with a doctor. Right. Um, and that basically they were trying to show that a professional would be in charge and not, you know, not the, the pregnant person. They would not have the decision, but it would be like the doctor would be in charge. And w when you read the Roe decision, it's very much all about the professional control and how that would work. Um, but of course, in practical terms, just as with the New York law, that dro drove the price up and put it out of reach of a lot of people. Um, and it's now a few states now do allow other medical professionals to do abortions and their results are as good or as better than MDs. These are for abortion procedures. And then of course the doctor requirement becomes even more ridiculous. And we've seen it, you know, even before Dobbs because when, when it, we're, you're talking about abortion pills, where it's a matter of handing you pills or handing you a prescription that is you know, an MD is not required to do that. It's just ridiculous. So um, then the other problem with it was this trimester system, which was also came from the New York law, which was linked to viability. So um, the idea was that you had a point at the end of the second trimester when the fetus would be viable and therefore the only time you could have an abortion is if you were going to die from the pregnancy, essentially. Um, so Lucinda Sisler, one of the leaders in the New York fight, pointed out that what happens when medical science pushes the viability date earlier and earlier, um, and that th this whole idea that, you, you know, there's a moment where you can no longer have control over whether you're going to continue the pregnancy. So, um, and of course, now the justification for banning abortion earlier and earlier is often, viability, you know, these extremely rare cases where a, where a fetus manages to survive outside the womb, and, you know. It's. 
at 20 weeks or, you know, something like that. So, um, and then fetal pain and all of this stuff. So it was really a, a gap that, that a lot of the states were able to run through, but they were able to run through these gaps basically because the Supreme Court over the series of the last 30 years has been narrowing and narrowing and narrowing the, the, um, our access to abortion, basically allowing states to put in First, it was um, parental consent and notification laws, and um, and then and then later, like uh, uh, waiting periods were okay, and then forced ultrasounds, and then like a lot of these restrictions on the clinics themselves. I mean, just one thing after another. But the very first thing, and the, perhaps the the most harmful, was that the court immediately agreed in the mid seventies. That um, that this federal government didn't have, even though it was paying for uh, birth, childbirth under Medicaid, it didn't have to pay for abortion under Medicaid, and and so um, it agreed with the Senate, which put put through this um, put through the Hyde Amendment, and that you know like in the sh- brief period where Medicaid was providing abortions, like. 300,000 people a year were able to get their abortion for free under Medicaid. And then that was shut down uh, the moment Carter signed the Hyde, uh, the Hyde restrictions in, in 1977. So, um, so that was perhaps the biggest setback and the court rubber stamped that. So, so the court, basically they started saying, okay, yeah, you can have an abortion. And then Immediately, they started pulling away from from the commitment to it, and so so the main problem is that we have, you know, basically nine people deciding the fate of millions, um, and it's just an undemocratic way way to organize it. So you know, really, we should have legislation, federal legislation, that says that abortion is is uh, provided for free through a national health system that we also need. So I, I think that would be the ideal, that that would be the ideal abortion legislation. And, you know, some countries have no gestational limit. Canada has no gestational limit. It's not really a problem. Why do we have to have a limit there um, that, you know, is this something really that the courts and the cops and the, and jails are, are, are set up to arbitrate? I, I don't think so. So, that's the other thing that that is um, insane about it. So um, ideally, we would have, you know, we would we would have no gestational limits, which you know, people if they want an abortion, they're going to get one as early as they can. Um, you know, they're not going to wait until they're six months pregnant, seven months pregnant. It's just not like it's unpleasant to be pregnant. If you don't want to be pregnant, you're going to try to try to end end the pregnancy. And the reason it's so hard to get early, early abortions in the U.S. is that it's very expensive, right? Um, so, uh, so we shouldn't have a gestational limit and we should have, we should have uh, a free abortion on demand uh, and, and uh, available to anybody who wants one. Yeah, so, so that question you asked, why do we have these limits? You, you posed some really interesting theories about it that I want to talk to, uh, talk about more at the end of the, the interview and also talk about the the struggle around abortion today. But before we do that, I want to stay in the 60s for a second and uh, talk a little bit more about um, radical feminism and women's liberation uh, at its inception. 
Um, and you know, this story about the protests at the the health department is not something that was in my head. Maybe I had heard of it before, but it was not a a, a major image to me. Um, of course, I was more familiar with this apocryphal story of a feminist burning lingerie uh, in the street. I think it was in a was it in New Jersey outside of a a, a beauty pageant or a Miss yeah, America pageant? Yeah, yeah, it was the Miss America beauty pageant in Atlantic City um, on the boardwalk, and they 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 actually tried to um, they they wanted to burn uh, what they called instruments of female torture, so girdles, curlers, you know, bras, but they couldn't get a, it was, there was a burn ban, so they couldn't get a permit for, for, to burn. So they made it a freedom trash can and they threw the stuff in there. Um, you know, makeup magazines with unrealistic expectations of how we're supposed to look all of this to high heels. Oh, you know, that, that was the kind of thing that they, um, and, and their idea was, you know, that, uh, that the Miss America pageant was sort of this held up this uh, this unrealistic and and really unattainable uh, beauty standard, um, which then meant that you had to wear a skirt to work, you had to wear heels to work. You know, it, it, all of these dress codes came from that sort of the the promotion of this of this beauty ideal. Um, that just made everybody's lives miserable. So, and uh, one of the organizers, and actually the woman who even, it, it, who initially came up with the idea of protesting the pageant, Carol Hannish, said, "You know, if we had been called girdle burners, <laughs> every woman in America would have joined us." <laughs> you know, <laughs> but then they were called bra burners, even though they weren't actually able to burn anything. And it's interesting that that's the way the story gets interpreted. Um, and you know, so, so one one thing that I I learned about uh, this protest, which I didn't knew before, is that uh, it, it was it was uh, one one of the women involved, and I think it was the the New York Radical Women, which uh, members of which later found the core of Red Stockings, who we mentioned before, um, were involved in the Yippies, or at least inspired by the Yippies and, and Abby Hoffman, and so this was their version of a uh, of street theater, you know, trying to do something really extreme to get press attention and uh, build their own narrative around something that the media would have fun covering. And in that sense, it was a huge success. But I think part of how the narrative was framed is uh, exactly the same reason why a lot of people on the left uh, did not like radical feminism as as its inception, um, is that it it felt that this was, uh, first of all, too middle class or too white or concerned with the neuroses of middle class white women who wanted to like, for example, uh, rewrite Marx. So women were in the place of workers. Um, and so it didn't matter if you were a black working class woman, you had the same struggles as a white working class woman, which is of course, if we read the, the New York radical women and red stockings, this was something, this was something that they were not saying. Right. Although some people were saying things along those lines, there was different feminists saying different things. But I think most importantly, why that story became so apocryphal is this uh, idea that the the personal political element in radical feminism meant something like your personal problems is what politics are, when in fact a point that you make in the book is what the personal political meant to the feminists and to the new left in general 
is that your personal problems have political roots. And so we have to we have to deal with our personal problems politically. Yeah, I mean, Carol Anish, again, was very good on this. She wrote a, an essay called The Personal is Political, where she makes that point. And that that phrase has been inverted to basically mean the political is personal. Um, you know, do do your recycling and and, you know, change your head instead um, instead of the the process that they went through, for example, with abortion, where they were like thinking about it as a personal problem. And then, oh, my God, this everybody's having this problem. We could do something about it. Let's let's make this into a political demand. Um, and I should say also that, I mean, the the feminist group that's most known for using yippee tactics is which. Um, which uh, the Women's International Terrorist Conspiracy from Hell. Uh, <laughs> and they, you know, they did actions like they hexed Wall Street and, uh, you know, the, uh, protested at the bridal fair, released a bunch of mice at the bridal fair, you know, just uh, a bunch of stuff that, but there were, there was, there was a lot of that going on for all of the movements. There was a lot of that, that sort of uh, performance art type um type thing. And the problem with it was that it's easily misinterpreted, right? So in the case of of the Miss America pageant, were they against beautiful women? Was that, were they protesting beautiful women? A lot of people sort of acted like that that was what was going on, when in fact what they were doing was protesting beauty standards, which were basically, you know, meant that you had to go to work every day in full makeup with your hair made up and heel any kind of office job you had to wear a dress or a skirt um at all you know in all weather i mean these are concerns for working people they these were not these were not middle class concerns um so and and there were important uh black leaders involved also in the in the Ms. america protest but if you look at the photos Flo Kennedy is out there in a in a um, drum major outfit, leading leading uh, leading the march. So um, the other thing they did at the Miss America protest was, which really got them press, was uh, four women snuck in and dropped a banner that said "Women's Liberation" in in the middle of the of the pageant, um, and that got a photo in Life magazine. So that sort of announced the movement to the world. This is uh, the summer of 1968. And then uh, somebody, Peggy Dobbins, also sprayed what they called a, a noxious substance in in the hall. And um, it turned out to be Tony hairspray, which was one of the or one. Of, anyway, a Tony product, which had been the spot, one of the sponsors of the pageant. Right. So um, so if it's a noxious substance, you know, <laughs> Then why are you selling it to us to you know put on our hair every day? So um, so anyway, there were there were a lot of tactics like that trying to get in the media, and it was wildly successful because the women's liberation movement, the early radical women's liberation movement, was on TV. There was a lot of coverage of it, and later you'll you'll notice that that co- that coverage ends and the sort of the with the turn to you know, change your head instead, dress for success, conservative feminism by 73 and 74, that starts to really be what the media is promoting, including Ms. Magazine. So um, so a lot of the er, that early radical stuff gets lost in um, in the histories. Although, as you say, Daring to be Bad is a really good history. 
Carol's Freedom for Women is really good. And then Red Stockings uh, put out a book in 75 called Feminist Revolution that's sort of an analysis of the first uh, six years of the of the movement that um, that is also worth looking at if you're interested in the history. And uh, yeah, so it's, and, and I think these, these books all trace out how these, this inversion happened of the, you know, the personal is political to, to, you know, something that means not exactly the opposite, but like a more, uh, a more media friendly version of it. Um, and that includes some very radical ideas in the seventies that what we need is a matriarchy, like the problem, why we have all these wars, why society is so cruel is that men are in control and women are by nature more peaceful and more just and emotionally stable. And actually, if we just can have more women in, in politics and in, in business and positions of influence and more spaces where women can be themselves, then we can just revolutionize society that way through, through cultural feminism. And uh, so this was a split in the movement. Um, and it's not a split that was intended by the radical feminists. Uh, but that is, I think, what a lot of people understand feminism as to uh, as it is today. And it's been, I, I think, like even among uh, socialists and leftist feminists, it's, it's difficult to um, get out of this mindset. And, and like an example of this is a, a really interesting point you make in the book is that if, if in the 60s, if you asked a feminist who was behind re- abortion restrictions, they would blame the power structure. Whereas a lot of feminists today would blame like the grassroots movement of anti-abortion conservatives. And so when you say like, well, what, what do we do now that these people are in control? Uh, to, how, how do we get these rights back or like, get, you know, fight for a real uh, access to abortion for the first time? They might say, well, we have to pressure. We have to counter anti-abortion protesters and clinics and and right wing judges. Um but in the conclusion of your book, you say that the Democrats and their nonprofit wing will not and can't defend abortion rights. Uh, and I feel like that's a more unavoidable conclusion than ever. But it, it, we've, I think that with that radical strain becoming so lost over time, uh, it's hard to get that attitude back, that uncompromising early radical feminist attitude. Yeah, I mean, so on the matriarchy thing, um, this was definitely a conservative turn. It starts in the, again, sort of 72, 73 period. Um, and, you know, it's basically this idea that women are are morally better or, you know, whatever, ovaries or something. I don't know. I, I'm very uh, opposed to this. I think it's, it's – um, it's bad on many different levels to, uh, you know, sort of uh, make your oppressed group like celebrate the culture of your oppressed group, and then and then sort of say that that's inherent biologically. I think that's you're not excited. That's pretty... You're not excited about the new prime minister of Italy. <laughs> well, I mean, you you know what happens is like so Thatcher becomes prime minister of England and pushes through all this horrible austerity and crushes the miners union and 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 so if you actually have that position then what they have to say is well she's not really a woman right Mm. which it it just clarifies just how dumb the position is to start (laughs) with right Right. so um so that's uh, and and this was but this was very much promoted by um by sort of this this parallel um 
conservatizing force within the women's liberation movement, which is symbolized by Gloria Steinem and Ms. Magazine, but also Robin Morgan very much was uh, in this position. And they positioned themselves, they positioned feminism as uh, unrelated to the left, and that the left was just more sexist men, just as bad as the power structure, and Basically, they had this like corner on women morality, and they were going to bring us into this new patriarchy. Right? It, something that Eccles points out is that it's very undemocratic. Like Morgan is even like talking about Elizabeth the first as like this powerful woman, and like I mean, it's just it's not even they're not even they're anti-left, but they're also anti-democratic in a sense. They're talking about matriarchy. They're not talking about democracy. So um so this is this was a a, a you know a very convenient turn for um for the power structure because because you know nobody's it's no threat to to the power structure if if people are running around um having uh you know doing uh sort of individualist stuff or trying striving for um, success within the within the main the mainstream system, um, that's you know that that's really not a threat, right? What's a threat is a unified uh, mass movement, and so um, so you know there's a lot there's a lot that goes into uh, you know building up this the Steinem wing and and really cutting off the radicals from access to the media and and um publishing and and basically the the message being basically cut off they were basically cut off from um from being able to address the general public which uh which i think means that we really uh really the the movement was in a way cut off from from its roots and when you don't have a sense of where you came from, you really are adrift. Um, so now I think that to some extent that, uh, you know, there's an exaggeration of the grassroots power of the anti-abortion movement um, that that kind of goes along with um, go- goes along with the power structure wanting to restrict our abortion and birth control rights. Um, you know, oh, we're doing it because this mass of people. Well, if you look at the polls, actually, no, um, most people are not for making abortion illegal, and and eighty percent of even anti-abortion people are for birth control. But the power structure narrative around it is really coming for all forms of control over reproduction. So that includes, um, and that includes sex education, right, in schools. Um, so you have abortion, birth control, and sex education all being targets right now. Um, that's not coming from the grassroots. An attack on birth control was not coming from the grassroots. That's coming from uh, a power structure, which has really changed around on worrying about, uh, you know, in the 70s, they were worrying about us having too many babies, and now they're worried about us having too few. So that's really a, a changeover. And in terms of the Democrats being wimpy on abortion, um, I mean, really what the movement has been pitched to because of this wrong theory of how we want abortion rights, oh, well, we want it in the courts, so therefore 
we need a good legal strategy. We need more lawyers. We need, um, you know, public relations firms and we need to appeal to funders um, rather than a grassroots strategy that would appeal to ordinary people about their lives. Right. So um, so you get the term choice being used instead of abortion. You get a lot of appeals to privacy and the rights of people to talk, you know, the the relationship, the sacred relationship between the doctor and the patient, which, you know, for anybody who's dealing with the medical system these days, relationship with doctor, between doctor and patient, that's insane, right? You have a series of one-time encounters with some medical personnel. Um, and then is privacy, the emphasis on privacy. It's a, this private, shameful decision that you can't, you shouldn't have to talk about. Well, that's exactly the opposite of what won us abortion rights in the first place, which was making public all this stuff that was supposed to be shameful and speaking out about it. And I think, like, Shout Your Abortion, which uh, started in 2015, talking about uh, where people basically testified about their abortions is a good antidote to that. But, but basically, the strategy has been the opposite of what actually won us abortion the rights to the extent that we were able to win them. And uh, sort of the high tide of abortion rights was when we were, were most vocal and ma making public our demands. So I think that's, um, that, that's something to take into consideration when we're thinking about strategy going yeah, forward. Yeah, and uh, Shout Your Abortion, um, for me, has been one of the more inspiring activist groups um, since the Dobbs decision, uh, doing things like, for example, taking abort-efficient pills on the, the steps of the Capitol. That sort of spirit of like a, a, of public displays of, of resistance, I think, is speaks to me a lot more. Um, I'll post a link to their, their activism in the show notes. Yeah, I mean, shout your abortion, taking, taking uh, abortion pills uh, at the Supreme Court when, when Dobbs was being uh, heard, I think is exactly the kind of thing we need to do. Because when you think about it, like, okay, so we had 100 years of illegal abortion and underground abortions were happening that whole time. But it, we didn't change anything until there was the public demand and we really made it public. So um, in my group, National Women's Liberation, we, um, you know, we feel that you have to make your uh, your illegal acts public um, in order to have the maximum effect. Now, of course, um, if you're helping people get abortions underground, that's that's great. At least those people are getting abortions. But we shouldn't. We should at the same time remember that the way that we won was by definition, you know, that stuff has to be secret. So we have um, we have a public pledge aid and abet abortion dot org. You can sign on to the public pledge. Um, a bunch of ways you can help uh, people get abortion and basically make it public. So um, and women's liberation dot org. We have more stuff on that strategy. Um, and it's sort of uh, uh, parallel to what uh, Shout Your Abortion has been doing with the pills, um, just really making it, uh, making a political demand that pills become uh, more available, which is something that the FDA has control over. And I was involved in a, um, the effort uh, about 10 years ago to get the, the uh, morning after pill over the counter. It was a 10-year struggle from like, like, 2003 to 2013, basically. Um, and one of the tactics we used there was 
uh, faxing the FDA our pledges to give a friend the morning after pill, which, you know, was illegal at the time. So um, so we think that's a really good route to go, um, especially in, in pressuring some of these agencies that um, that are very hesitant and and think that they're going to get in trouble if they if they um, make make any of these changes um, just to create pressure on the other side. So um, so aid and abet abortion dot org if you're interested and you can testify about why you're signing up to. So some of the other uh, activist groups or um, you know uh, protests that have been really inspiring after the Dobbs decision, um, not just to me, but I think to people who are were horrified by the decision in general, included the Jane Collective, which was an underground abortion service uh, organized by feminists and uh, people who just taught themselves how to do it, um, and the Women's Self-Help Collective, which similarly went around teaching how to do DIY abortions and, and uh, other questions of uh, women's health. Um, and, but then also these sort of mass movements to, to legalize abortion or to prevent restrictions in Ireland, Poland, Mexico, and Argentina, um, which have sometimes resulted in pretty spectacular riots and, and general strikes and uh, referendums. Um, and, and, you know, you, you talked about how the Roe versus Wade decision came from the court uh, needing to uh, legitimize itself under immense social pressure. So do you think the fact that this decision happened today meant um, it didn't need to, uh, it didn't need to legitimize itself. It's no longer interested in its legitimacy and what kind of action, like what's, what's the vision for uh, the abortion struggle today that can force the courts to act again? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the courts are really going to be the answer, and I never, I never really, I, I don't think they ever really were um, the right way to make abortion legal. Um, I think abortion needs to be legal by legislation, um, and but you know, in some cases, you take what you get, right? I mean, like in Mexico, it's been decriminalized throughout the country by the court, um, whereas in uh, in Ireland, it was won by referendum, um, and in Argentina, it was won through the legislature. So there's a lot of different ways you can you can win this, um, and I think the you know there's some interesting themes that we should bring back to the struggle in the U.S. Um, from the from some of these successful movements in other countries. Um, in in Ireland, um, basically. Their slogan was free, safe, legal, and they had bumped along for decades trying to get the law liberalized, somewhat similar to the U.S. in the 60s. Um, so it was like, oh, well, you had to have two shrinks say that you were suicidal to get an abortion. Well, maybe if you only had to have get get one psychologist to say you were uh, suicidal um, or um, you know, what if you were going to die if you got the abortion, maybe loosen up those rules what changed is when they stopped trying to make incremental changes and really started demanding free, safe, legal abortion. And they, the, this group, the abortion rights campaign, put abortion in the name of their campaign, which uh, a lot of people advised them, oh, you can't do that. It'll turn people off. In fact, it attracted tons of people because they knew what they were talking about. Um, and 
larger and larger demonstrations every year. And then when the referendum was put on the ballot, they did a massive door-to-door canvassing campaign all over the Republic, uh, you know, just really talking to people in deep ways about abortion and and talking about their own abortions. You know, a lot of a lot of speaking out about about people getting abortions because in Ireland, nearly everybody just goes overseas to get their abortions. So um, and and then uh, and then they were also coming off of a winning referendum on marriage equality a couple of years before, um, and a lot of exposures of the Catholic church's abuse of children and mistreatment of women. So they had some, they had the wind in their sails in some ways, but, but really they were able to win by being very straightforward and making that demand. Um, and I say also another theme that's important, and this is particularly true in Argentina, is the connection with larger left movements and parties. Um, and this is also true in Colombia. Um, so, uh, Basically, the demand for it to be free through a national health system, right? Um, and in Argentina, they connected the the deaths that were resulting from illegal abortions to the movement that was already uh, uh, very strong against femicide. So there was um, there was a real like a move there around the safety aspect was really big, um, but. But then also, of course, through the legislature, they had to get the parties on board. They had to get unions on board. They got, you know, they a lot of uh, organizing uh, within the movements that were already in motion, right? So, and then in Argentina, when they won, um, the law passed in December 2020, I believe. Um, it says that um, up to 14 weeks, you can have an abortion on request, um, and the national health system has to give it to you within 10 days. So like, uh, and of course the movement demanded no gestational limits and five days, but it really casts a light on, okay, we got a legal right to abortion sort of, but we never really won abortion in the U S because you still have to c- come up with money f- to pay for it. So, um, so that's, th- that's like, one of the things, if we're really going to win uh, full reproductive rights, we're we're going to need to have a national health system that covers all of these things, um, and that's and and I think tying it to that is really important. Um, and then in Mexico, they won decriminalization through the courts federally, um, but already for decades in Mexico City, you could get an abortion through the public health system because the Capital District had a progressive government, and um, and it, it's free if you live in the Capital District. And then uh, if you came from somewhere else, you could get an abortion, but you had to pay for it. Um, so so again, like the 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 progressive movements, you know, the um, are are part of how it was won in these other places. And I think that that indicates that we're not going to like. Feminists alone are not going to be able to restore abortion rights as just like sort of an isolated movement. It has to be a broad front demanding what we need. And one of the things that that I think is a really broad demand that that we can connect it to is national health system. And uh, another sort of action item towards the end of your book um, about 
how the feminist movement and the abortion struggle needs to uh, or can broaden its base um, is by connecting male supremacy with white supremacy. And in the course of my life, and of course, like this idea that uh, feminists were race blind or something like that was a major critique from uh, the inception of radical feminism. But in the course of my life, I've seen this idea of intersectional feminism um, in, in, with a critique of white feminism included in it emerging as a corrective. And so part of like a, a well-rounded feminist uh, reading today uh, includes focusing on the voice of uh, black feminists and non-white feminists and non-white women in general and their perspective and critiques of, of this movement and, and trying to connect it with black liberation and other forms of non-white liberation movements. Um, I'm just wondering if, if you think these concepts are working or if they're, um, if they're, if they're sufficient because, you know, again, like we're, you know, after the Dobbs decision, we saw some protests, we saw some inspiring actions, but we didn't see anything like black lives matter or the George Floyd uprising. It, it still seems like black liberation is still the movement that's like really motivating people to fight in a way that feminism, despite being a mass movement, despite being massively popular, uh, it's just not doing it the same way as in Mexico or Argentina. Yeah. I mean, part of it is that the feminist movement has become isolated from the general progressive movement. And, and, and this is a deliberate effort, right? So, so, um, we saw this during the um, the Hillary Clinton Bernie Sanders campaign, right? So, so if you were a feminist, you were not allowed to support Bernie Sanders. You weren't, you know, you were sort of like drummed out of being a feminist. Um, when in fact Sanders was better on abortion, he was better on a ton of things that are important to w- women, right? They're still and, so uh, mad at Susan Sarandon. They will not. They will not get over it. <laughs> so. So how did, you know, that again, that split between the left and feminism, which is completely insane, right? Because just, for example, Me Too, right? You cannot fix sexual harassment in a society where you have, um, basically, you can be fired for any reason or no reason legally, unless you have a union, um, on any job, right? So you're not going to fix that until workers have power on the job and and the power to to say no right because your your livelihood is dependent on doing what your boss says okay so so it's just um the idea that those two things are separate right is is insane and i think like part of what reproductive justice which originates in the 90s in the uh, among black feminists um starts to point out and they were actually reacting to the Clinton healthcare fiasco right where the 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 Clinton plan jettisoned abortion rights and uh and a group of black feminists were like wait this is not you can't do that that's not you're not representing us um so that's where reproductive justice came from and that was like coined um coined then to get back to the idea that these things are connected, which of course in our lives, they are connected, right? But this conservative push and this conservative move to wedge feminism away from the general left project of democracy and freedom um, has, has really, I think, been harmful and reproductive justice has been able to get, stitch some of that stuff back together um, and that's been tremendously important. And one one example I think that 
that, uh, you know, the principles of reproductive justice are the right to have a kid when you want to have a kid, right to not have a kid when you don't want to have a kid, and the right to raise kids in safe and healthy conditions, right? Connecting those three things is tremendously important, especially in a society where right now they're trying to force us to have kids on the cheap, right? They don't want to pay for childcare and healthcare at our schools and all of this infrastructure. They want to force all of those costs back on the family. And the cheap way to do that, since people are like, I can't afford to have a kid, the cheap way to do that is to force us to take away our reproductive rights, including um, taking away uh, access to, to contraception. So that's what's going on right now. And you, can, you can't you can answer that with just sort of like, uh, you know, pro-choice, we won't go back. You have to actually have the analysis that reproductive justice advocates have, have brought to the table. Um, and that comes from the black movement. And I think, which, you know, uh, partly because of, Black women's class position um, is much more precarious, and 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 uh, also the history of the movement. They they're much clearer on some of these radical principles than the white movement, uh, the predominantly white movement has been. Um, that doesn't mean that all, you know, that th- that all the black groups are right on stuff and all the white groups are wrong. But um, but it does mean that um, that you know it there it's a good it's good to take a look at if you're a white feminist to look at what black feminists and other feminists of color are, are saying and, ch- and check and check to see if you're, if you've got a blind spot on some of this stuff. Great. So I've got one last topic that I, I really want to ask you about. And really this is probably the thing I'm, I'm the most curious to ask you about. Um, and on this show, of course, I'm drawing connections to the sixties and today and something you do in your book is you actually trace this back to the 1860s when abortion was made illegal uh, in the United States with the Comstock law uh, after the civil war to increase birth rates. Um, And you also say that such concerns were an element of the liberalization of birth control and abortion in the sixties and seventies when technocratic elites were worried that the baby boom would go on forever and create this unmanageable surplus population And you say that today technocrats are worried about declining birth rates again. Um, So what I really want to know is, uh, you know, and I really I want to, you know, this is the argument I'd like to have. um, But I just don't see totally how that opinion amongst the technocrats and the elites, which I, I do agree exists, what the steps are between that and the Dobbs decision. Um. And like, you know, how does that happen? And then how can that process get interrupted? Yeah, I mean, so I think the connection is basically an austerity politics that's trying to force um, the expense of uh, reproducing the workforce into working class families. So um, so the history of it is that there's there's a two decade freak out basically among the ruling class about overpopulation. It lasts from the mid 1950s to the mid 1970s. Um, and it's, I think this is a moment in history that may be unique where a ruling class is like, well, you're having too many babies. Um, I don't know of another period like this. Generally countries want to be bigger. They want to build their military. They want to, you know, conquer other places. Um, and at least capitalist ones and imperialist ones. Um, 
Now, it wasn't this freakout was not just about populations overseas, although that was a big part of it. Um, so in the developing world in that post-war period, um, you had antibiotics and vaccines and sanitation, which caused huge drops in infant mortality and child mortality. And so people were living longer. And that meant sharply growing populations nearly everywhere. And at the same time, you had colonial powers getting kicked out um, in Africa and Asia and, the, and um, socialist revolutions in many cases. Um, and so in the U.S., a lot of those, those things were attributed to population and the demands of growing populations. Um, and they they really thought that growing populations were leading to communism. In fact, this guy who wrote the original population bomb pamphlet, Hugh Moore, who was a he was a, a like millionaire who who had started the Dixie Cup Corporation, he placed ads in uh, in major publications talking about how mass starvation in underdeveloped countries will lead to communism. It's a we you know we can't afford more Vietnams, um, so our national interest basically demands that we go out and help underdeveloped countries control their population. So this was the line, right? Um, now in the United States, within the United States, it was a similar thing. They blamed. Um, the long we had a long post-war baby boom, uh, longer than a lot of other countries that were involved in the war. So they, but they blamed all of these uh, young people for crime, overcrowded schools, and then urban rebellions, a lot of the um, black liberation stuff. So at that time, there was a split in the ruling class about whether to allow birth control and abortion, and it wasn't even along party lines. Democrat, Republican, the way we think of it now. Um, it's, it's, and it's in this really relatively brief period in that, that 20 years that when the ruling class is like, ah, I don't know, maybe we should let them have abortion and birth control, that um, feminists were able to run into the breach and win some of these rights, right? And then ever since, they've been trying to narrow our rights, like starting with the Hyde Amendment and then and then all of these other restrictions, and we've, you know, making sex ed basically abstinence only, and um, you know the big fights around uh, uh, payment for for birth control pills, and then the fights in Obamacare around uh, around contraception. So there, like, it's become more and more intense, and it's become more and more intense as the birth rate in the U.S. has plunged. I mean, it was. It was um, oddly high for a developed country during the 80s and 90s, right? In in Europe, birth rates were were going down considerably, and the U.S. birth rate was sort of staying high. And people said, "Oh, it's you know sunny American optimism and everything." But in fact, I think if you look at the stats, the what was really going on is there were a lot more unintended births in the United States because we just don't have good. Healthcare access and certainly not good abortion and contraception access, not compared to like France or Sweden. So um, in Europe, the response to the lower birth rates was, oh, let's uh, let's give people long paid leaves, like a year for each parent, or let's um, let's make childcare free and really high quality, and just make it easier to have kids. 
Um, in the U.S., the response has been, well, we don't want to pay for any of that stuff, right? The rich are absolutely not willing to pay taxes, so, um, and they control both both parties. So, um, so, but they do want um, they do want uh, the population to continue growing because capitalist uh, economic growth, by which they mean profit opportunities, is dependent in large part on population growth. And we actually now have below replacement levels of, of, of our birth rate is the lowest it's ever been. So it's not that it's a direct connection. It's just that the the ruling class does not want to, is not interested in defending any of these rights that we have, right, at this point. Because it would be just as well if we started to have more more kids that would be convenient for them. So, I mean, you don't, you know, so they're not, they're not responding in a way like, you know, Biden could have said, fine, every VA hospital is going to provide abortions to anybody who wants it. You know, I mean, they could have responded, but they, they aren't responding that way because they, um, you know, the whole ruling class is, is very concerned about this. And this is not just a concern in the U S this is a concern all over the all over the world among in capitalist countries that you know the the capitalism arose and has has been uh you know basically carried along by increasing population for the entire 500 year history of the of the system and we're now facing for the first time two thirds of countries have below replacement uh birth rates. So that means that uh, already in Europe, populations are actually declining. In Japan, the populations are declining. In the US, they would be declining if we didn't have immigration. So um, so this is uh, this is actually a concern for, for the capital, capitalist class internationally. And, you, you know, we saw China go from a one-child policy to then a two-child policy as, you know, as capitalism, uh, capitalist modes of production have been restored there to the extent that they have. Um, and now they're actually trying to encourage people to have more kids, whereas the socialist government was concerned with, you know, development that would spread throughout the population. And so you, you see like an about face in a lot of places on this issue. Um, and it, it doesn't mean that they're, you know, that this particular Supreme Court justice is worried about the, the you know, decline of capitalism, but it does mean that the general, the general political, um, political climate has changed around abortion and birth control. Um, and it's, I think that, um, the feminist movement didn't, has not been, didn't take this on board essentially because it arose in that period when, there must have been another reason why they were uh, they were banning abortion. Gosh, it could, must be to punish women for having sex, or you know, it's it's uh, prudery, or any of these other things. But if you look at the history of of the U.S. when abortion was first banned and and federally in 1873, it was because the um, the population had started people had started having fewer kids. Um, essentially because contraception and abortion had become widely available. Um, and at that time, they were worried about, you know, the, the problems of immigration at that, 
at that point they were scared about Catholics coming in and swamping Protestants, right? Um, and uh, they were concerned about you know who was going to who is going to settle the West. Um, but uh, and now it's it's uh, much more around you know how how who are we going to who are we going to sell our products to? How are we going to find um, find you know? Uh, how are we going to expand an economy when when the actually the number of people in the country is is going to shrink? So um, I don't know. Does that does that uh, give you a sense of kind of the argument? Yeah, I, I think it does. It's, it's helpful. It's just it's just a hard thing to think about because um, for me, I think probably for you as well, like the idea of um, having kids or not having kids, like. I don't care about the population of the United States. You know, I don't, I'm not trying to like produce a, a worker to, you know, reproduce the capitalist system. Um, I wouldn't choose to have a kid or to not have a kid based on, on, on birth rate trends or something like that. So it's, it's so hard to think about the way the state or various uh, strata of the elite, um, consider these things and like how that influences their decision. But it, it makes sense that like the Democrats even might, might be privy to like the, the same sort of ridiculous arguments that like Elon Musk is making for his support of the Dobbs decision to say like, well, look, the United States needs this competitive edge, birth rate trying to decline. It's a, uh, you know, actually this is a technocratic solution to get people to have a lot of kids. Um, but at the same time, if we're like really to, to fully think out, this bourgeois anxiety about birth rates, I keep running into the fact that um, there's also this immense pressure to limit immigration or to, um, you know, reverse immigration in some way or like keep it siphoned off and like not expand citizenship to newly immigrant groups. Um, and yeah, at the same time, not doing this European method of incentivizing childbirth. I mean, you hear right wing populists talking about it. Uh, Obama said that he was going to do it. Trump even said he was going to do it uh, to some extent. And the, they don't do it. They don't even try. So why, I, I mean, why is it that this like punitive measure is, is, is that just the, the, how it works now? Like the only thing they can do is discipline? Well, I mean, it's a lot cheaper, right? A, a national childcare system would, would be, you know, the rich would have to put in a lot of money for that, you know, but Elon Musk included, right? So they would much rather um, push those costs back into the family um, onto our strained wages, right? Um, and, the, you know, in Europe, they have, uh, they have, to the extent that they, you know, are still strong, labor movements and labor parties that are able to push through um, some of these some of these programs that will actually help families. I mean, I I totally agree with you. I mean, the 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 question of like population as an abstract, it's not a question for the ninety nine percent. This is very much an anxiety of the one percent. Doesn't matter to us, like normal people, whether the population gently decreases or not. That's not. I mean, that's definitely not the argument. The argument is that. For the elite, they, it's a it's a real concern, and and this is like it's virtually an obsession. I've been I've been kind of jokingly looking at the Financial Times every day to see where the article about demographics is, and there's almost always something 
on demography and the declining birth rate here or there. Um, you know, it's it's just some little graph, something. So it really has become uh, an obsession of the of the uh, elite, um, and you know, it's mediated obviously through religion, in the sense that it's it's presented as well. We need strong families. We need large families. This is this is the fiber of our society. This kind of you know uh, push everybody back into the heterosexual family with the kids with the white picket fence, right? I mean, it's all, and and it explains a lot of the anti-queer and anti-gay and anti-trans um, stuff that we're, we're uh, uh, experiencing as part of this, um, you know, as part of this right-wing uh, positioning that we're seeing on the court and and among politicians. So, I mean... It's it's all mediated through religion, but religion obviously is serving the powerful and serving some of the interests of the powerful. So, um, and then uh, around immigration, now, I you know there is a significant portion of the ruling class that wants immigration and wants more immigration is actually freaked out about the birth rate going down in the sending countries. Like, for example, in Mexico, the birth rate in 1990 was like 3.5 kids. Now it's down to 2.1, same kind of drop in the Philippines. Um, they're very worried that this endless supply of cheap people, basically people who have been raised on someone else's nickel, as uh, as Ben Wattenberg put it in the 90s, um, are is gonna is gonna be cut off, and they're gonna have to actually um, you know pony up for the reproduction of a working class. But um, but that doesn't mean so. There's that. But that doesn't mean that they are they want legal immigration. This is, what they want is, you know, people under as much control as possible. And so by making by putting people in a in a legal twilight zone, that makes them much less powerful as workers, much more um, likely to be be um, terrorized, easier to terrorize. And if they demand uh, better working conditions or wages or equality on the job. Right. So um so the the abortion the the um immigration law doesn't necessarily track exactly with like oh we want immigrants one and if you read like some of the pro immigration republicans they're very much into um like Jeb Bush wrote a book called the Immigration Wars and he's he's pro immigration um but his ideal is no family reunification right so you can't bring your family because and he actually explicitly says this because families tend to include young people and old people who are more expensive in terms of healthcare and education. Um, so we just want the worker to come and do the work. And then, and then he's very big on, and Trump was very big on guest worker programs, which are the absolute worst in terms of working people's rights, right? Because you come on this, on this, you know, it's a euphemism, guest worker visa, right? Basically, it's an indenture. Um, and you are completely at the mercy of your employer, because as soon as you lose the job, you lose your rights and will be deported. So, um, so you are, are basically in a, in a state of semi-slavery in those, in those um, guest worker programs. So that's the kind of immigration, that's the immigration types of immigration that they want. They want that control over the working 
working population. Um, and but they are very worried that um, that those, uh, you know, the 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 um, treasury of people coming here and uh, and contributing to the economy and contributing their work and making profits for for capitalists is going to trickle down to uh, not very many people. And, and you can also see like their bias towards uh, towards sort of young workers versus families in the reaction to refugees from Central America um, mm. and that whole, the, you know, locking people and separating the kids out of the camps. They don't want people that are going to cost them money. They want people that are are they're already educated and grown up and ready to work and um and then boot them out if they mm -hmm. uh, if they annoy their bosses so that's right. their ideal yeah and also people who, who have to like walk through the desert for a week you know and just show up totally you know messed up and at death's door and just desperate to, to have any sort of stability um yeah, yeah. But, uh, and i mean that is of course uh, those uh those People who are, are are refugees are a direct result of U.S. policies in, in Central America, in particular in Honduras, the coup that um, you know that Hillary Clinton supported, um, and and you know dis disastrous anti-worker policies that have really made made those countries just impossible to live in, and that's why people are leaving. So um, you know that. But they're leaving in family groups, obviously, um, and they the U.S. authorities do not want to want to let families in. All right. I've got one more question, if, if you feel up to it. I know we've been going a long time and you've been very thorough with your answers. Sure. All right. And this might be a little bit of a curveball. But so the 60s is famous for sexual revolution, which the radical feminists actually supported while criticizing the replication of male dominance and violence within the counterculture. And recently, there's been a lot of discourse about these statistics that have come out showing, for example, nearly 30% of men under 30 haven't had sex, which is a higher number than ever before. And a lot of people, when they see these statistics, their, their first impulse is, this is a result of the feminist critique, or this is a result of the left making sex a scary or harder thing. I think a lot of, you know, especially after Me Too, a lot of what people associate with feminism is actually the opposite of this uh, intervention into the sexual revolution that the, the radical feminists initially had, which was about, like, how can sex be enjoyable and satisfying for women as well? But what do you think of this phenomena? This is a crisis of gender in general that has also hit men and has made men so dissatisfied. Yeah, I mean, I... I think it really speaks to kind of the isolation that people are experiencing, um, not having sex, not having relationships. People are not having sex because they're not having relationships, right? That's where most sex occurs, right? And the reason they're not having relationships is that people are very isolated. They're very um, overworked. And the sort, sort of the ways that we relate to each other socially are sort of gone, I mean, at least in person, you know, there's there's social there's electronic interaction. But but in terms of real interaction in in person, a lot of that is has gone by the wayside. So so we are in this, you know, sort of isolated situation. I think it's that's the 
why that that's happening. I don't think, you know, I don't think anything that feminists said about sex in the sixties has anything to do with that. I mean, I mean, definitely feminists, feminists emphasized, uh, that, you know, women deserved and, and needed to have sexual pleasure as well as men. Um, that actually made sex better for everybody, in my opinion. So I, I really don't think that that can be uh, that, that can be laid at the door of, of feminists. Um, and then in terms of me too, well, you know, yeah, co- coercive sex. That's that's and rape. That's um, less of that is good <laughs> by any measure, right? <laughs> so um, I don't think I don't think feminism can again be blamed. Um, yeah, I mean, I think yeah, that's, I that is what is sort of implied by those sorts of critiques. It's that you know, I, I heard a guy actually say uh, straight up once that when he was younger, he could get laid by just buying a lot of Long Island iced teas for a random woman at the bar. And now he can't do that anymore. And he blames feminism for that. And, you know, not understanding that he was a date rapist. And like the fact that he can't do that anymore is a very positive thing for women he was preying on. Right. So right. now Sorry, he that's has kind of a actually, dark story, but that's that's how I kind of think of this critique. So, right. So so what is he being? He's being forced to actually be an interactive human being who treats women as other human beings and talks to them and actually, um, you know, be appealing in some way to them to to, <laughs> to get to to get people to have uh, sexual relations with him. And he's he's objecting to that, I, I gather. Um I think it's an improvement, right? I think men have uh, men are being confronted to some degree with with the necessity to be better partners, and 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 of course there's resistance to that, you know. And but if you if you wanna you wanna have heterosexual sex and you wanna have intimate relations with people, you act, actually have to treat them as human beings and and be somebody that they want to spend time with. And I think that you know that's an improvement to, for everybody. Let's let's raise the standards a little bit, and yeah, if it's yeah, raising yeah. the standards, I think that's good. That's a really good way to put it. Uh, thanks for answering that. Um, is there anything else you want to mention before we go? We've covered a ton. Yeah. Everything. <laughs> I did not think we were going to get to everything, and we did. Yeah, I mean, I didn't get to the, the International Women's Day demands that you had mentioned. No, you did. Mentioned you mentioned it. Oh, I, I mentioned the— um, We're like three yeah, of them. Yeah, I mentioned— I, that, was, that was the liberal one, not the radical. But, uh, um, that, yeah, that's fine. That's plenty— Plenty, plenty there to chew on. I think, I think that's plenty. And it would be great if you could put womensliberation.org in the show notes for people to, um, to go there. And also our aid and abet abortion.org sign up thing. Yep. That would be great too. Yep. I'll put those people both in. Take, people can take a look at this. All right, Jenny, thanks so much for talking. It was uh, really great to talk to you and um, I learned a lot from your work. So thank you. Yeah, it's great. You got me looking at the last couple chapters of Daring to Be Bad, and I remembered how much great stuff there is in there. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. I'll definitely check out those other books you recommended, too. Yeah, yeah. Okay, great. Thanks a lot. It was good to talk to you. Take care. Good night.
Fred and I's no place to hide. 